Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And today we are joined by my good friend, someone I've been looking to have on the show for a while and just needed a reason to have you on. Like I was trying to think of a theme because I think that having you on the show is going to be huge. I'm excited about this. And today we are joined by the one and only Brian Portnoy. Good to see you. Welcome to the show, Brian. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. This is great. Or as I like to refer to you, BP. So we'll just refer to you as BP. Yes. My good friends call me BP. So you've just sort of shuttled right into the uh, good friend lane unwittingly, but you deserve to be there. So nice. Nice. Good place to be. Yeah. So today, what we wanted to talk about was funded contentment. And I've been able to like, you know, I followed you for a long time, read some of your books and just have really fallen in love with the way that you explain things. And I would love for you, for the people that might not know who you are in the minority money community, would you mind giving them a quick background of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for the invitation. It does mean a lot. So I am on my fifth career, not fifth job, fifth career. And I like to tell people that one of the arts in life is being able to paint the bullseye after the arrows have been shot. And then you tell a story that that's where you were aiming. But I can assure you that none of this was planned. Started in politics, then I went to academia, investment management, investment research and portfolio management, then on to writing in the field of behavioral finance. And a couple of years ago, I launched my own company called Shaping Wealth, which extends some of the behavioral research that I've done and tries to make behavioral finance very practical for financial advisors and other practitioners. So I've got a small company with two fabulous partners and we're up and away with some great clients and figuring it out. Awesome. And one of my favorite topics has always been behavioral finance. And I think it doesn't get talked about enough. I think that the work that you're doing is going to really help people understand that. But what I think about when I think behavioral finance is I I think about just like money scripts. I think about like just the way that the stories that we tell ourselves, the narration, the bad habits, if we will, and then, you know, just kind of naming and titling behaviors. And usually it's all negative. Usually we're not, usually we're not you know, speaking of ourselves or speaking to ourselves. Self-talk is usually not positive. Or as in my mind, I like to say, if you're talking to yourself, it's good. If you're listening to yourself, it's bad. And <laughs> I like a that. lot of the stuff we do is listening to ourselves, right? So I was talking to someone before I came up here and they're like, what are you guys going to talk about? So we're going to talk behavioral finance. And they're like, what does that mean? Yeah. So like if you were to explain like behavioral finance and like the study, like what does that even mean? Yeah. So I think the shorthand term that's a little easier to process is to just think about it as the psychology of money. Mm -hmm. Basically, how do we think about in the world of money decisions? And I'll broaden that in a second from investing to a variety of dimensions of money life. Behavioral finance is sort of both the, the academic study and the practical application of thinking about how we make decisions, form habits, but also have certain perceptions and attitude toward money. Historically, it's mostly been about investing, you know, sort of how do we make better investment decisions, choose better stocks and bonds. 
build better portfolios. But in my view, there are seven dimensions of money life. There's earning, saving, spending, borrowing, protecting, investing, and giving. And each of those from a neurological, from a psychological, as well as a sociological point of view, there are nuances in each of those. So I think what's happening in this field called behavioral finance is that increasingly practitioners are thinking about how can I make better decisions about saving, spending, borrowing, giving, investing, or how can I help others do that? It's an academic field that was started by two unknown Israeli psychologists close to 50 years ago. Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, is a must-read if you're interested in the field. Like everything Michael Lewis does, it's a wonderfully written tale. of It's a story of two great friends who disrupt the world, hence The Undoing Project. But fast forward from, you know, Tel Aviv in the 1960s to 2022, there's been some amazing developments and a lot of wrong turns. And like you said, it doesn't get as much attention as it should. And one of the things we're trying to do at Shaping Wealth is put it in its proper light. Absolutely. I think that like what you're saying is just, I love it. As I'm thinking about like the behavioral finance, I know there's some other people in the field, you know, shout out to like Carl Richards and <laughs> Daniel Crosby. I don't know if he's here today. I don't know. If My guy, know. DC. I haven't seen him. I'm on initials with you. I'm not DC. I'm not to DC yet. We're BP, but we'll work on that. So uh, yeah. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll loop DC in. He's been on the show though. So maybe we should be there. Maybe okay. We should be there. We okay. did have him on the show. One of the things you talk about in your book was funded commitment. Can you talk a little bit about that funded commitment? Funded contentment. Contentment, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I published a book in 2018 called The Geometry of Wealth. Mm -hmm. And just a quick backstory is that I published a book previous about five years earlier called The Investor's Paradox. I would consider both books some form of a midlife crisis. I've had two, neither particularly interesting because both involve sitting by myself and reading a book. The first one was me after close to 15 years of doing investment due diligence, manager due diligence, wondering like, what in the heck is all of this? Like, why am I doing this? I remember at a not happy moment in my life in 2011 in New York, I was at a bar and I wrote on a cocktail napkin, no one grows up wanting to do manager research. (laughs) So the investor's paradox was sort of my chance to really sort through where I was in my career, you know, what I referred to at the beginning in terms of painting bullseye around the arrows had been shot in a very bad direction. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll just paint the bullseye over there. I got to the end of that project on making better investment decisions. And I basically concluded like, who the heck cares? Or at least maybe being a little kinder to myself and others. Let's put how much we care about investment decision making in its proper context. Because, you know, half decade later, aging parents, three teenage kids, just thinking a lot about life. So the geometry of wealth came out of that, and it really attempted to answer the question that friends and neighbors and contemporaries were asking in one way or another time and again, which is, am I going to be okay? Mm -hmm. Not, have I chosen the right mid-cap value fund? Is my portfolio efficient? That's not what people really care about. They've got deeper life concerns in terms of, am I going to be okay? How much is enough? What's the relationship between money and happiness? So I'm like, what the heck? You know, I'll write a book on this. And I dug into it. This term funded contentment, which I guess I coined, it's my tagline for true wealth. Mm -hmm. And the definition of funded contentment is that it is the ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. And I deliberately crafted that sentence in a way 
to include some loaded words that needed to be unpacked. So true wealth or funded contentment, the ability and the wherewithal to underwrite or afford a life that is meaningful to you. And so one of the jokes, not funny joke, but you know, just sort of a comment in the geometry of wealth was that it was a prequel, mm-hmm. leaving aside my passion for Star Wars, everything. I love prequels. And so the geometry of wealth is the book that I should have written first, but didn't because I couldn't until I sorted through some other stuff. And so funded contentment ended up being the lens through which I began to answer this question that I was hearing both professionally and personally, am I going to be okay? And it starts with the second half of the sentence, underwrite a meaningful life. What is a meaningful life? We can dive into that. We can click for a lot of details. But I spent, in addition to having been alive for almost 50 years at that point, I also did just a lot of directed research and reading and literature and theology and psychology and economics and anthropology, just thinking about like, well, what is a meaningful life? What is contentment? We can go back to the ancient Greeks. I mean, Aristotle wrote the Neomachian Ethics about 2,400 years ago. These are exactly the topics that he and others were debating way back then. So these are not new issues. So I set out a framework for what is a meaningful life. And then that's the contentment part. And then ask the direct and I think somewhat awkward question, can I afford those things? Mm-hmm. One thing that has emerged from the framework is that many of the things that drive a deeper sense of a life well lived don't cost much at all, or they are in fact free. Mm-hmm. And so I've used the funded contentment idea as really it's a small door to a very big room in which you can explore a lot, either in terms of your own life journey or as a financial advisor, helping your clients achieve funded contentment. It's proved to be, and it's been a flattering and humbling journey over the last five years since the book came out, I think a useful tool to ask the right questions. I think just listening to you talk and I think about the questions that my clients are asking me, right? They're, they're asking very similar questions, you know, am I going to be able to retire? Mm-hmm. But if I take a step back or am I going to be okay? When I take a step back and like when you're talking about like designing or having that great life, like it's really, really hard for us to even get clients to step back mm-hmm. from like just the numbers and trying to tell me, okay, I need to get to this. You know, we've done a good job in the financial services industry of telling people that they need to have a number. This yeah. is the number you need to have to retire. But we don't really talk about how that translates into the life that they want to have mm-hmm. or what life do they want to have minus the money? Like, have you even thought about what that looks like? And so when you're doing the work that you were doing, how were you able to like connect that, like that disconnect from what the client is trying to, you know, <laughs> what mm-hmm. they want without knowing what they want? Right. To get them to the place where they can actually describe how they want that in terms of money. Yeah. So. Let's start with an observation that's not intended as a criticism, but I think it's empirically true, at least partially, which is that the financial advisor-client relationship is broken. (laughs) The things that really matter and the opportunity for the advisor to make an enormous difference in someone's life is often overlooked or just, you know, gone by very quickly because neither side of the table wants to go there. The financial services industry broadly defined and then wealth management as a very important sleeve within that has, you know, this default and somewhat unconsidered idea of humans as calculators and tends to think of the problems and solutions as practical ones that can be reconciled numerically. Mm -hmm. The fact is that we are not born as calculators. We are born as storytellers. 
we are born as meaning makers. It's an awkward stance for a financial advisor to quote unquote go there. But at the end of the day, I know for better or for worse, I think for the better, because I think it's a noble profession. I know thousands of financial advisors. I can't really think of any that don't care passionately about the well-being of the families that they are responsible for. The challenge is that from an attitude and perception point of view, from a tools point of view, the ability to really crack the code on tackling the human side of money, it's right there in front of us. It's not hard to describe, but it requires a little bit of consideration and contemplation, and then a lot of reps. What I've found in, you know, not just Shaping Wealth over the last couple of years, but at a couple gigs going back, you know, close to a decade now, where most of what I did was behavioral coaching with financial advisors and their clients, is that most people in that dyad, that relationship between advisor and client, didn't feel that they had permission to go to the hard parts. I mean, the fact is, and this is well known, American Psychological Association does a study of stress in American life every year. And every single year at the top of the list is money, religion, politics, relationships, sex, you name it, like they happen after money. It's the most awkward thing because money is, in fact, this emotional lightning rod. It captures, it draws to us fear, greed, joy, hope, envy, anger, happiness. It's all wrapped up with money. But, you know, sort of the patron saint of Shaping Wealth is Brene Brown, and she talks about bringing language to emotions because without the language, the emotions are just sort of gut feels. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Money World, where if you don't have the vocabulary, you don't have the mental models, meaning you don't have sort of the connections between the words that form kind of causal relationships. Absent all that, it's very hard to know how to get started. And one thing I've been surprised at over the last several years is how much the mere act of permission and validation opens up doors that everybody wants to go through, but rarely do. Mm -hmm. Man, it's like you say to people, it's okay. This is emotional. This is hard. You're not a calculator. You're a feeling human being. You're trying to sort this stuff out. It's okay for us to talk about these things. That's mm -hmm. a revelation, not just for the client, but mm -hmm. in some cases, the advisor. Mm -hmm. The one-two punch, permission and validation. The second step, validation, once you've given permission and you see body language change, you see exhale, you see mm -hmm. the shoulders relax. Literally, I see this in meetings all the time. Mm -hmm. You go to the validation stage and you say, guess what? Others are struggling too. You're not alone. When you tell people that they're not alone in what is clearly the noisiest moment in human history, mm -hmm. that other people like them are struggling, people don't want to be a face in the crowd, but we overestimate in our industry how much people want to have like a custom solution. You don't go to your doctor with a pain in your side and have him or her say, oh, I've never seen this before. We're going to come up with a custom solution for you. <laughs> no, you want the doctor to say, I've seen this a hundred other times with my patients and I know what to do. That's what our advisory clients want as well. And so when you can say others are struggling with something similar, I've been there. I think this is going to work. We're going to answer that question. Can I retire with dignity? Am I going to be okay? Can I help my aging parents? Can I help my kids in the way that I want to? Can I be generous in my community? The questions that motivate all of us, man, 
Once you say that you can go there mm -hmm. and that other people are struggling with the same journey, you've switched on a light in a dark room and all of a sudden you can start to explore. Amen. 100% agree. And the reason is because I've seen it with my clients. Yeah. Like the body language that you're talking about, like, a, you know, you're not the only one. I've seen this before. Those were, I've said those exact same words to clients and just said, you know, I've, I've seen this before. You're not alone. What we need to do. How are they going to feel like, oh, I've never seen this before. I'm going to give you a custom solution. Mm -hmm. Gosh, don't get me started on custom solutions. Yeah, that would not be good. But when I'm talking to them and they do that, it's amazing to me how often people want to belong to a group of bigger people, right? Mm -hmm. And we like to be with that group. And it's almost one of the easiest ways to disarm your client by mm -hmm. telling them they belong to a group of people that may be going through the same thing that they're going through. In fact, if they are, right? And most of the time, nine times out of 10, we're dealing with someone in their finances. There's going to be other groups of people that I've probably worked with or that other advisors have worked with that are going through similar things. However, we don't like to talk about it because that whole money taboo thing. Yeah, I call it cohort-based advice. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be a face in the crowd. You don't want to have a problem that no one's ever heard of. You just want to know that you're part of a definable cohort of people who are struggling with similar challenges, have the same aspirations and sources of joy, and that, you know, they're not alone in the world. I mean, if there's one key to our genetic wiring, it's that we're tribal, small T tribal. You know, we, if you think about in just evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, like we are wired to be connected to mm -hmm. others, like literally mirror neurons in the way they work, the way that we have evolved as a species. We are connected to others. The fact is that we treat money relationships as the most private of issues. And the issues are held in such isolation mm -hmm. It makes people feel like they can't really get to a better place. And obviously there's, you know, just from practical level, there's, there's confidentiality issues. It's not like you're sharing, you know, details between one client mm -hmm. and the next. But I think one of the most underutilized power, even superpower of the modern financial advisor is building a community of clients. And beyond the steak dinner or once a year, like annual event, you know, when they hire a chucklehead like me to come give a speech or something beyond like the one dinner a year, the opportunity to sort of build, build a community, it's right there in front of people. I've seen some advisors and advisory firms do a good job with that. But for the most part, that does not take place. We do a good job in this industry. I've said it before. I'll say it again. We do a good job of getting the numbers right and the people wrong. We spend yeah, all sorry. of our time on the numbers. We spend no time on the people. And that's part of the problem with the relationship building. And that's part of the problem with not having those comfortable conversations because we haven't earned that trust from the client to have the conversations that they need to be able to overcome some of the things that they're going through. What role does money play in achieving a happy life? You know, the answer depends on how you think about happiness. And so really, you can go back to Aristotle and Epicurus and debates, you know, whether happiness is maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, there's a Greek term called eudaimonia, which basically is amorphous term that refers to a deeper sense of contentment. The fact is that you go to the thesaurus and there are dozens and dozens of words that we can use to describe happiness. If you look at the wiki page for happiness, I think there are more than 3,000 authors with more than 6,000 edits. <laughs> Okay, so does money buy happiness? What do we mean by happiness? To me, the way we can just simplify and cut through kind of that etymological chaos is to say that there's two things. 
there's experienced happiness and there's reflective happiness. Experienced happiness is sort of our day-to-day mood, good mood, bad mood. It starts with your set point. You know, some people are kind of grumpy. Some people are sort of cheerful and, you know, they're going to have some volatility around that. But people kind of return back to that set point. But you have a, you know, you're happy, you're sad in the moment. You had a great meal and you're happy. You hung out with your friends. You know, your Uber didn't come and you're really PO'd and you're angry, like trivial, but the stuff of real life that happens, you know, many, many times a day, that's experienced happiness. Reflective happiness is what I call the step back. It's the step back and to say, am I living a good life? Are things going as I had hoped? We don't do that a lot. And I'm not saying we should, because in fact, you know, we're not philosophers. We're living our lives. We're doing our jobs. We're raising our kids. There's a lot that we have going on. But every now and then, we do reflect on whether we're living the life that we really want to. Money has a different relationship to those two forms of happiness. On the experience happiness side, beyond a lower middle class income, basically an income where you can have food on the table, a roof over your head, you know, you feel physically safe. Money doesn't buy more daily happiness, more experienced happiness. And, you know, there's numbers that get floated out there. And I'm not going to even name them. People probably are thinking of certain numbers. The problem is that, you know, Manhattan, New York and Manhattan, Kansas, the cost of living is quite different. So the fact is, if you can take care of the basic necessities and maybe a little bit more, money does not buy more daily happiness. As it relates to reflective happiness, which is a newer area of research, there's some important evidence from a few scholars, including Danny Kahneman and Angus Deaton, both Nobel Prize winners in economics. Uh, One's a psychologist, one's an economic historian. But, you know, they showed research that show that beyond that level at which money doesn't buy more experience happiness, reflective happiness does not abate. It, It does not decrease that much as you climb the income ladder. There's a lot of statistical and psychometric complexity to this that, you know, it's not at all appropriate for today's conversation. But, you know, I'll just leave listeners with the fact that if spent wisely, money can buy happiness. The the last thing I'll add, and there hasn't been as much research on this, I wish there was more, but the relationship between money and happiness is fraught. You know, it's yes, no, maybe, yeah, kind of does, kind of doesn't there's a relatively strong relationship between more money and less sadness. And I think that's profoundly important. You know, there's a behavioral principle, loss aversion that we could possibly get into, just the idea that losses are more painful than gains are pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the powers of the modern advisor, if she chooses to go this direction, is to help clients avoid the things that they don't like one of the things that we do at Shaping Wealth in working with advisors, we have a coaching program on anti-goals. How do you help clients to avoid the things they hate, whether it be the, the, the commute mm-hmm. that bothers them, seeing their first cousin Ned at the, at the monthly family picnic, whatever they don't mm-hmm. like, how can we use our financial wherewithal to avoid the things that we don't want? That's actually statistically a far more reliable way of living a good life than it is thinking, okay, how does money buy happiness? Because you do get into a bit of a a stew there. I was thinking, like, as you're saying that, I was like, but that means that the advisors are going to have to talk to the clients a little more and and ask better questions to be able to have those conversations. Yeah. Amen. I mean, (laughs) for us, and, you know, I've got two amazing partners, Neil Page and Joy Leary. Joy's a, a clinical psychologist, and she's my Brene Brown. She's amazing. 
And, you know, she talks about empathy as a superpower. And we really believe that the superpower of the modern advisor, what we call the behavioral advisor, is empathy. Empathy is not sympathy. Mm-hmm. Sympathy is, in her words, distance to pity. The other end of the spectrum is emotional contagion, where you drown with people, mm-hmm. like you're just so into what they're experiencing. There's a, this nice middle ground where you can be actively listening, truly understand where somebody's coming from. Some of the training we do, for example, is on empathy, as you know. And the idea is not to become Oprah. The idea is not to become Brene Brown. It's to become an incrementally more empathetic version of yourself so that you can listen a little better, so you could feel a little bit more, so you can ask a better follow-up, so that you can know when to shut up. Let them talk. Let them tell their story. And once you're able to do that, the money and sadness topic, the money and happiness angle, wow, you've just created a lot of extra space, a comfortable space where they've been given that permission and that validation Mm -hmm. to really go places that they didn't think that they were going to go in the context of financial advice. So what is the evolving role of the advisor in the dynamic wealth management industry? What's that role like? Yeah, I think there's been an interesting half-century arc. I keep invoking her name, and maybe it's too much, but we've gone from Gordon Gecko to Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, we've started with a blue horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. You know, so not so much Gordon Gecko, Bud Fox, but Gordon Gecko gives me alliteration, so I got to <laughs> use that where I can. It wasn't that long ago, 80s, 70s, and certainly before, where this was, this was mostly a brokerage business, you know, buy and sell stocks or other securities, bonds on behalf of your clients, and that's fine. And very much a transactions-oriented industry. A bunch of things happened. We're not going to boil the ocean today. But, you know, I think the evolution has gone from selling to investing and allocating, meaning, okay, we're going to build you an efficient, we're going to not only pick the right securities, but we're going to put them into the right type of portfolio. We might even attach them to your goals. So we, you know, bridged into a planning-oriented business. I mean, financial planning's been around for forever, many, many years, decades. But as sort of a major thrust of the industry, it was really maybe in the aughts, but certainly after the GFC, that, that planning got a big tailwind. And then selling to allocating to planning. And now I'd say we're in the world where there's a subset of the industry, especially in the independent RIA space, maybe a little bit in the independent broker-dealer space, not so much in the wirehouse space where coaching is relevant. Not financial therapy. Yes, every advisor I know has said to me at some point they feel like a therapist Mm because they're listening to the emotional issue. So just call that small T therapy. But the fact that you can help guide somebody, that you can ask them questions that reveal things about themselves that either they didn't know or they did know but didn't want to admit... I was watching my son, one of my sons is a huge basketball nut, and he made me subscribe to the uh, NBA package. Mm -hmm. I'm like, the NFL package is expensive enough, but now I got the NBA package so I can watch Heat Nuggets. Like, that's a terrible example because those are two good teams. But I was watching Lakers Nuggets the other day, and, you know, you got Jokic on one side, you got LeBron on the other, and the coaches of the two teams during the breaks, you know, they'd have the mics on, and... The coaches were saying things like, get back on break, move without the ball. 
You think LeBron James needs to be told to move without the ball? The guy's a genius on many levels. So when I say coaching, it's not woo-woo, it's not goofy, it's not therapy, it's being on the side of your client with a plan and reminding them during moments of stress, but also moments of calm, that there's good ways to do things. Let's turn good decisions into good habits. And, you know, let's remember that generally in life, you want to fix your roof while the sun is shining. That's part of good coaching. So financial advisors as coaches, it's not like they need to come up with super clever geometry of wealth type stuff. It's like, okay, we're going to ramp up in the early years on basics. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the right way to navigate money life. Let's talk about the things that are meaningful to you, the different sources of contentment. Let's talk about your ability to underwrite the things that are meaningful to you and just be there repeating those things so that when the market volatility comes or when there's an unexpected and unwanted life event, the playbook is there. And you need to say out loud, get back on defense, move without the ball, push the break. But they already know it, mm -hmm. and you're just reinforcing something that you've taught them. I think it's like, as I'm hearing you say that, I'm thinking about my own sports career and just things that I've done and things that I've heard. And you're sitting here listening to the coaches talk to players in the NBA, right, at the highest level of basketball as you can play. And he's talking about fundamentals. Mm -hmm. He's talking to LeBron James, yeah. who may be one of the you know best, greatest basketball minds there is, and in other rights, too. And he's telling them you need to do the fundamentals. And it's so important, I think, that even at that point in time, like teaching our clients fundamentals. Mm -hmm. When things are going good, these are the principles and fundamentals you need to follow. When things are, you know, when it hits the fan, these are still the same principles. It still works. Blocking, tackling yeah. works. It still works. And I think that we love to look at the shiny things. We love looking at shiny things. Yeah. And whatever it could be, tech, whatever it is we're trying to, yeah. to do for our clients. And I think sometimes that gets in the, a lot of times, not sometimes, a lot of times, I think that gets in the way of really playing that role of coach. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll double back on myself a little bit. Like, I think the modern behavioral advisor is both mechanic and guide. You got to have the technical parts down because money life's complicated. You know, I look at some of the stuff that Trace and I have going on with our aging parents, with our kids, private investments, like we need help. And we've sought help for technical things for which in the same way our car breaks and hey, someone needs to know how to go into the engine and fix it. But absent the guidance, there's a whole level of better experience that you're not providing. And the fact is many of those mechanical things, I don't want to say all of them, but many of those mechanical things are becoming commoditized. So when you think about and people, you know, poo-poo it and they raise their eyebrows. But when you think about the fact that Vanguard's personal advisory services now roughly, what, half a trillion in assets starting from zero not that long ago, you get a CFP that you can call anytime. You get a fully baked plan that gets updated. You get tax rebalancing. You get a portfolio of, you know, cheap index funds in a reasonable 60-40, 40-60, 70-30 blend, whatever's going to be appropriate. And you get the whole thing all in for advice and product for 30 basis points. You know, I'm not saying that that's the way many people are going to go, but the fact is that as the younger generations grow older and you think about really everyone under the age of, I don't know, 50, but 45 and certainly 40 is now a digital native and not like me, a digital immigrant, they know how to Google. 
They know how to collect information. They know how to ask hard questions. And I think, you know, advisors who not only want to compete, but in my view, do the right thing, they're going to be prepared not only on the mechanical side, but on the guidance side, on the coaching side. I think you have to be. Like, if you want to continue to be an advisor in this space, you a good advisor. Yeah. A good advisor. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the learning experiences offered at Shaping Wealth? I know you've, you've mentioned that a couple of times and, and I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's awesome. Again, I'm really blessed to have Joy and Neil as partners. And, you know, the idea there is the mission for the company is plain to say it's funded contentment for everyone. I mean, that motivates us. Joy's in California, Neil's in England, I'm in Chicago. So I was going to say it's written on the wall. It's written on a digital wall. Yeah. It's on a virtual wall. We, you know, we use Notion, so everything's in there somewhere, lost most of the time. But the mission isn't lost. Funded contentment for everyone is what drives us every day. We talk about it all the time. And the way that we think that we can make a difference in the world at this point in our careers is through a B2B platform. So we work with financial advisors as distinct from building apps or other things for the end client, the end consumer. And, you know, what we've kind of put together in the last really year and a half is different programs and, you know, content creation, both coaching and content programs that help advisors become better versions of themselves to the extent that that's where they want to go. I mean, I say all the time that I don't convert, I sell Bibles. I'm not looking to turn an old school broker into a financial therapist. But, you know, we work with a lot of people who want to go from good to great or from great to just fabulous. And because, going back to one of your earlier questions, because behavioral finance as an applied matter has been kind of a dud, it really has, and a long rambling view on that. But the fact is that it's been mostly, you know, a friend of mine calls it the behavioral finance entertainment complex we have really fun, colorful infographics that list biases, confirmation, anchoring, recency, stuff like that. Our view is that we need to go beyond biases and get back to basics, to fundamentals, to what you put it in the coaching context, and just help people have better conversations about the things that really matter. The main thing that we're doing now, because I think it's important to stay focused, really 90 plus percent of what we're doing now, a couple client things off to the side, is a program called Building the Behavioral Advisor. It is a very carefully staged 100-day experience. There are eight modules that basically boil the ocean. We start with what is a human being? Mm -hmm. And then say, well, what is money? Because the human brain, this thing between our ears, it was fully formed about 130,000 years ago. Money was invented 6,000 years ago. There's a mismatch. And so money is not just a means of exchange and, and a store of value and what we learned in seventh grade. It's an emotional lightning rod channeling Yuval Harari. It's arguably the most important form of social trust that's ever been created because I can go with a colorful piece of paper to a place where I don't speak the language and use that in a reliable form of exchange with someone I don't know. It, it's really unbelievable as a social institution. It packs in a lot of things. We know that it can be a cudgel to hurt others. It's a form of power. And so this program, Building the Behavioral Advisor, starts with humans introduces money into the mix. And then we really get into the weeds in terms of let's take storytelling seriously. You're here in part as a ghostwriter, you meaning the advisor. You're listening to people and helping them tell a better version of their story because our stories are written in pencil, not pen. And so we have the opportunity 
not entirely, but to erase and rewrite the parts that we want to. It's a skill understanding what narrative is, what our narrative identity is, and how that figures into our money life. We train advisors on empathy, as I referred to earlier, which Joy has the lead on. And, you know, what we found, just to tie a bow around it, is that there is an eager and active, you know, subset of the global wealth management industry, you know, U.S., Canada, U.K., Western Europe, Australia, a little bit Middle East. There is this subset of advisors who are like, finally, people who want to make this behavioral finance stuff practical and usable where they can, number one, be a better version of themselves, number two, be a better advisor, and then number three, build more profitable, wider moat businesses. Love it. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. So there's a few questions that I like to ask at the, at the, uh, as we close up the show. The first one is, what motivates you and inspires you to continue to grow, learn, and lead? I don't like, for as much as I talk, I don't like talking about myself. So I don't like this question. One thing I've observed about myself, you know, because I've thought about things. I'm curious. I don't know where that came from. I've always been curious. I've always had wanderlust. I don't have great childhood memories, but one that sticks with me is my mom would take me to the Pittsburgh International Airport. And, you know, this was in the mid-70s. So there were no security, you know, like there's no TSA in 1975. So you could just kind of walk in and, and I just vividly remember that I thought it was so cool that you could just get on these metal birds and just go places. And I don't know where that sense of wanderlust came from, but travel's a passion of mine and it's never, it's never diminished an iota. And so bridging that wanderlust to curiosity, I think the world's a just a beautiful place, man. You know, it's fascinating. There's so much going on. And I truly like waking up kind of confused and stupid. It comes naturally. Just ask my wife. But I like waking up in the morning knowing that I'm going to learn something new that day. I like knowing that I'm going to go to bed, maybe become a little bit smarter, but I'm going to wake up. The myth of Sisyphus is very much part of my self-defining narrative. And there's different takes on that myth. I actually think it's a beautiful and inspiring myth. The obvious take is that, well, he pushes the rock to the top. You know, this is torture, right? Like he defied the gods, pushes the rock to the top of the mountain, and he's just about there. And then, damn, he, he loses the straight falls all the way back. And for eternity, he's got to go back to the bottom of the mountain, push it back up. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hell yeah. That's great. That's your daily work. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to do the work. And so that sense of curiosity, that drive just to know things, I don't know where the hell it comes from, but I love it. You know what? It has to be something. It's coming from deep inside you because it's driving you to do a lot of great things. How has your family helped you on this journey? Depends how you define family. My immediate family has been amazing. Tracy's 100% supportive of, you know, I've had a pretty effed up career. I mean, I've had some great success, but boy, I've taken some left turns and some right turns and it's more good than bad. But, you know, at every step along the way, she has been amazing. My kids are cool. I'll give Tracy more credit than I admit. I had something to do with it maybe, but my kids are cool and they're supportive and they're inquisitive and that makes me happy. So in terms of a nuclear family, very supportive. 
and I've written about this. I published a book with Josh Brown a couple years ago on money story. So my money story, including the details of my portfolio, are there for people to examine if they want. I did not grow up in a healthy household on any level. And, you know, talk about money as a cudgel. Like my parents fought about money constantly. Grew up comfortably. Dad was a successful attorney. Mom was a housewife, you know, just your standard suburban nightmare type scenario, you know, the type of situations that Sofia Coppola makes movies about. But just fighting, just terrible memories. And then fast forward to now, neither is at all supportive. Like they're total boomers. They're complete egomaniacs. So that's the way it goes. It happens sometimes. It happens. Yeah. Um, I remember like it's uh, I now to say this just because it's just uh, so we're talking about the stuff we're doing with Onyx. Right. And I, yeah. I tell my aunt, I was like, yeah, you know, I tell my aunt, I was like, yeah, you know, we just got to deal with Vanguard. My aunt looks at me like, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> no. So we got some work to do. Right, 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 right. We got some work to do. For me, the family that matters is very supportive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you could offer a piece of advice, parting gifts for our listeners, what would that be? So I was hanging out with my son a couple days ago because, uh, you know, it's on spring break and we were sitting at a diner and I shared with him something that I'll share with you. And I hope it's not pedantic, but, you know, I wish someone had said it to me 30 years earlier, which is that in life, it's really powerful to be both interested and interesting. Like, care about others. I was about to swear. Care about others. Ask what they're up to. You know, two ears, one mouth. God gave us that for a reason. So listen, be the guy who isn't full of shit. Be interested. Because if you are interested, even if you fake it, <laughs> it'd be nice if you were genuinely interested. But don't be interested as a sales technique. But that matters. And then be interesting. Explore the world. It's such a big world. There's so much going on and it's noisy and, and there's a lot of anger and lack of kindness and that's a whole different conversation. But if you can be interested or interesting, you're kind of ahead of the pack. If you can be both, then I think you're in a good spot. And, you know, there's an irony. You don't want to be overly strategic in pursuing this. You want it to be an authentic stance. But be out in the world looking to help others and to enjoy yourself and then share that back. That's great. I love that. By the way, my 17-year-old really couldn't have cared less. He wanted like another Diet Coke at the end of my little talk. He was like, uh, Dad, that's great. I'm thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> my daughters sound the same way. Yeah, I'm still trying to convince them that I'm cool. I'm cool everywhere else, but they don't. It's just not cool with the, the 16 Oh, yeah, I'm cringe. I'm so cringe. <laughs> So if people want to get more of you, if they want to get more of Brian Portnoy, where can they find you? What social medias are you active on? Yeah. I mean, for those who are interested in what we're building at Shaping Wealth, the website is shapingwealth.com. And one good thing is that the demand for this program we're offering is far beyond our capacity to serve. So we have an invite only list and you can ping us through the website and I'll be happy to send you information. So shapingwealth.com is sort of a good place to kind of check out the vibe and, and the vision for what we're doing. Like everyone, you know, here, Twitter is kind of my floating office, and I'm just at Brian Portnoy. So that's the best way to track me there. And for better or for worse, there's only one bookstore left in the world. And so you can just go to Amazon.com, and I've got three books there, and I'm proud of each of them for, for very different reasons. 
But one of the cool things about the books that I've published is really the friends that I've made along the way. It's unbelievably flattering to have your words brought back to you through the eyes or ears or mouths of other people and be like, holy, holy moly, like this might have made a little difference in somebody's life. So those books are on Amazon. Check them out if you're interested. Oh, yeah. We'll make sure we put links to the in the show notes to all three of those books and then links to Shaping Wealth, the website. We'll make, sure, we'll make it easy for people to find you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Easy is good. And yeah, get rid of the friction. Just let them, you know, it's great l- there. Little, little James Clear strategy, you know, get rid of friction to allow good things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just wanted to thank you, man, because you've been on my list for a while to have you on the show. So to get you on the show and just have you share everything that's going on, the stuff you're working on has been absolutely incredible. I learned a lot here and I'm learning a lot. I'm still still learning a lot about shaping wealth and I appreciate all the work you do. And I appreciate, you know, just being a friend, you know, you reached out to me a while back, didn't really know me like that, but you just reached out and I feel like that was two years ago. Yeah, yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. yeah, So like I said, thank you for that and for the work that you do. And and I look forward to a long lasting friendship and uh, growing professionally with you. Yeah. And let me just Thank you so much for that. And and right back at you. I really appreciate you and what you're building at your practice at Onyx with Desarte and just the positive stuff that you're putting out into the world. I just think we're at this pretty awful crossroads where lack of kindness, lack of empathy is hurting all of us. And so I see you as just, you know, a soldier in the good fight. So just keep up your stuff. And man, I'm going to support you however I can. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. And we're going to wrap up with that. As you all know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Until next time, we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please, reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here, and until next time.